Hey, podcast family. Did you know that on May 2nd and 3rd, 2024, our 3D Growth Summit is happening in Nashville, Tennessee? But in-person tickets are already sold out with nearly 400 attendees. But you don't have to miss out. You can get exclusive access to our live stream and post-event recordings for just $395. Yes, you heard that right. For a single fee, you and your entire dental team can learn from our industry leaders with online recordings available after the event. So secure your spot now before it's too late by visiting www.3d-dentist.com slash 3D Summit or give us a call at 855-332-2285 and get your tickets for the live stream and event recording today. Now, let's get to this week's episode. There's how many trillions of dollars of dry powder sitting uncommitted un in a lot of these funds? And some will argue that there's more money available because the stock market is not a safe bet right now, and dentistry is a safe, relatively safe bet. So exactly. So you go back multiple decades, and you look at private equity in terms of investment thesis for, for multiple decades. And we've taken a look at a lot of this and Deloitte and some of them at a high level do studies on this. Healthcare services are always in the top three investment criteria. We've been misled to believe that dentistry, more specifically the dental business, has to be complicated. Dentistry can be simple and dentistry should be simple. All right, everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of the Dentistry Made Simple podcast. And if you guys remember on our Dental Business Made Simple framework, one of the things we talk about uh, towards kind of phase four is the concept of exit strategies. Now, traditionally, exit strategies have has been thought of a retirement vehicle. And more and more today, we should actually be thinking of exit strategies much earlier in our career. And my argument would be if you're in your mid 40s, it's probably time to at least start looking at an exit strategy, not necessarily saying you got to do it, but you got to start looking at it. And in this week's episode, uh, I'm going to bring Perrin Desports on and we're going to talk exactly about that. Now, selfishly, we're going to talk about this from what I think is our core audience, which is the single one, one practice owner, maybe two practice owner, private practice, PPO type of practice. Uh, and selfishly, we're doing it because it's something that I'm considering and going through the exercise of. Uh, so for those of you that don't know Perrin, Perrin is one of the co-founders of Polaris Healthcare Partners. He is a Washington and Lee University graduate and earned his MBA from the Darla Moore School of Business at the University of South Carolina. We won't hold that against him as a UNC fan. Uh, but Perrin has over 25 years in the dental industry, uh, having run three different business units at Patterson Dental uh, over his 15-year career there. Uh, so Perrin, how are you doing? I'm great, Tarun. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on today. Obviously, been an admirer and fan of yours through many decades at the uh, uh, at the Peterson Dental Company, as I like to call it. And I'm glad we're getting a chance to speak and catch up today. It's good to see your yeah, face again. I'm glad to see you too. Now, selfishly, uh, you know, I, I want to pick your brain. I want to get free consulting coaching on this uh, on this podcast today. Uh, so, why don't we start with this? What are the different exit strategies available to uh, the solo practitioner, and why should they consider exit strategies not near end of career, but more maybe 
mid-career point. Yeah, I, I I was really grateful that you sort of prefaced this by saying, you know, if you're in your mid 40s or let's call it mid career, um, when people think about uh, selling their business or they're forced to think about selling their business, that's kind of a bad time to reach any type of uh, a negotiating table or to reach maximum value for for anything you want, be it a house, a business, or otherwise. Um, and I think you know when you when you talk about exit strategy and exit options, it really should be a strategy. I think there are three things you probably want to keep in mind, and I'll try to be um, sort of congruent or maybe logical for the audience here, um, you know, since we're on audio. Um, the first thing to kind of think about as it relates to exit options are really what your future desires are. And I say you're as the, the business owner. So is this a scenario where you are wanting to sell your business and walk away? Uh, it changes hands, you're done, there's a new owner, you are, you're gone, you're out of the picture altogether. Or is this a scenario where you would like to sell the business and stay on in some capacity? maybe a part-time clinical capacity or an administrative role, maybe stay on as a full-time clinician, you know, and continue to be, to, to earn income from clinical services, but to reap the value of the business from an equity context. So the first thing is what's your future desire? Those are what I just described are completely opposite altogether. The second thing would be is sell to whom? Um, are you really thinking about selling your practice only in the context of a young associate, a solo dentist who is going to buy you out either immediately or gradually over time. We call that a, a doctor to doctor transaction, typically using bank funds, obviously. Or are you open to selling to a group? It could be a doctor group or it could be an established DSO. Um, are, are, do you care about who buys your business, solo dentist versus a group buyer? And the third thing to keep in mind uh, and I'm going to try not to get too wonky on this one, <laughs> but it's what I would call transaction structure. And we can dig into this a little mm -hmm. bit more if you'd like, um, because there are a lot of rabbit holes to it. But when I say transaction structure, if you are selling your business uh, to a bank funded young associate, um, that person's going to borrow a lot of money. The check's going to be payable to you. It's going to be probably an all cash transaction. You're going to pay off whatever remaining debt you have on the business. You're going to pay Uncle Sam for being your trusted business partner for all these many decades. And you're going to put some dollars in your, your bank account. Um, so that's a, a cash transaction, an all cash transaction, typically from a solo buyer. That's really different when you talk about selling the business uh, to, a, to a group, potentially. There are all cash offers, but most groups have some type of a, what we call a hybrid structure, for lack of a better term. It's a component of cash. It's maybe a component that would be an earnout if you stay on in a, a clinical or leadership capacity. And it's potentially something that might have what we call an equity role, meaning yeah. you become you roll some of the transaction proceeds into ownership in the mother company. Um, and, and you stay on with them for some period of time until you cash that out. So the, again, the three things are, what are your future desires really? The second thing is, do you, do you care who you sell the business to, solo or group? And the third thing is about transaction structure. Perfect, Perrin. That answers that pretty well. And, and something else I want to talk about a little bit later uh, is some tax implications. So now, all right, so let's, let's take a look at this. Um, so 
when we go through this, what I I keep hearing all this uh, EBITDA and X valuations and twenty X valuations and the you know doctor to doctor valuation versus a doctor to group valuation. You know what what really what what does the dentist, the individual dentist, need to know on the reality of what they can expect in evaluation of a doctor to doctor sale uh, versus a a, a group slash DSO sale. Yeah, um, we could record a podcast series on this one if you wanted to. So again, I'm going to try to keep it um, informative, but uh, as light as I possibly can. Um, So doctor to doctor transactions, which is the way the industry has been. uh, Majority uh, of the years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, what is it and, and how does it come to be? Well, there are a lot of CPAs and dental practice brokers and, and people representing sellers um, to, to sell their business in a doctor to doctor trade. What that is, is a valuation um, that is somewhat or a sale that is fairly dependent upon bank funds to get it done. Yeah. So the young associate is going to borrow money from a bank and going to buy out the, the senior owner. Banks make lending decisions a number of different ways. Um, and again, I'm going to try not to get too wonky here, but there's one, there's a, a methodology or a, 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 you know, a calculation called loan to revenue, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, typically in the, it maxes out probably around 80% of revenue with some working capital, maybe 85%, something like that. So if the revenue of the business uh, is a million, three million for example. Okay, so three three million and and an eighty percent number on that is is about two point four on loan yeah. to revenue. All right. Um, the second thing banks make lending decisions on is something called debt service coverage ratio, and there won't be a test on this, I promise. But debt service coverage ratio is the same thing for somebody buying your practice as it would be for you and me buying a house. All right. So the bank wants to know that we cash flow from however we generate cash, that we're able to satisfy our debt obligations with some window of of variability or fudge to it. Right. Some margin for error. The bank wants to know that you can that you, based on your personal lifestyle and all the other debts you have, can satisfy the additional business debt that comes along with it. If you are if if you are selling your uh, practice to a bank funded young uh, buyer, I say young, a bank funded uh, solo dentist, um, that is like an owner operator model, right? right? So the person who's guaranteeing the loan is going to be probably the primary economic engine in the business going to do most of the clinical work is going to be in it five days a week. And and if that thing starts to take a nosedive, they're going to die trying, right? right. That is their full endeavor. That sort of valuation methodology, whether you use asset values, discounted cash flows, uh, loan to revenue, percentage of collections, all of that mishmash tends to land in the 60 to 80 percent of collections window. All right. And that's why most of traditional solo practices value somewhere between about 60 to 80 percent of collections. Now, what about what I'm hearing nowadays of of markets going at the 100% valuation and things like that. So a lot of that is driven by 
the um, ca the owner cash flow characteristics of that business. Mm -hmm. It's probably a higher revenue business with a, a reasonable um, fixed cost basis. And so if, if somebody does buy out the senior seller, it, the business probably cash flows pretty wonderfully. And the cash flows are probably pretty secure, okay. meaning they, they might not change from one owner to another. We can talk about, you know, uh, clinicians such as yourself that do like expanded clinical functions and things like that, because that's a different element of risk that I think we want to talk about in a second. Um, but the other thing that's driving the, the percentage of uh, revenue uh, numbers higher are the group buyers. The competition. Um, yes, absolutely. So again, much like selling a house, what's it worth? Well, it's worth what the market will bear, right? And if you have a, a high value practice that cash flows wonderfully, Group buyers look at practices and small groups as a multiple of EBITDA in terms of valuation. And again, there won't be a test on this, but EBITDA is normalized cash flow. Um, and what a group buyer wants to know is if they buy that business, what is the likelihood of the cash flows continuing indefinitely into the future? Or what is the probability that they could expand the cash flow mm -hmm. out of the business by either adding an associate, increasing reimburse, insurance reimbursement rates, uh, recapturing specialty procedures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they are able to arguably pay more for a practice than a bank funded solo buyer would be because they bring more resources to the table to generate greater cash flows in the future and and practices when they measure as a multiple of EBITDA are probably going to value more highly than those that would be um, uh, simple doctor to doctor transactions. So, all right. So for comparison's sake, and let's just use prototypical, not like the one-offs on the top and the bottom line. Yeah. What you're telling us is on a doctor to doctor sale using bank bank funds on a solo sale, you typically can expect anywhere from 60 to 80 percent in certain markets, maybe even up to 95 to 100 percent of annual revenue. OK, now, when we go to a doctor to group practice to group sale, and again, we're talking about the solo one doctor, you know, one location practice, not necessarily one yeah. doctor, but one location practice selling to either a doctor run group or a true DSO group. Now, suddenly we don't go necessarily on a percentage of revenue, but we go on a multiple of EBITDA, which is essentially, for better words, profit. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, podcast family. T-Bone here to talk about the 3D Dentist Digital Implant Continuum. Are you ready to start placing dental implants, but feeling a bit hesitant and or overwhelmed? I know that feeling. I've been there. Let's change that together. Imagine not just learning about dental implants in a classroom, but actually performing surgeries on real patients right here in North Carolina, guided every step of the way by our expert 3D mentors. This is dental implant learning at its best, using techniques that are safe, predictable, and confidence-boosting. They're exactly what I use in my own practice, so you know they work. Our course goes beyond clinical skills. We prepare you to successfully integrate high-demand implant services into your practice, transforming your career by attracting new patients and elevating your practice. And it doesn't end with the course. Completing our program is just the beginning of a new journey. You'll be a part of a community of confident, skilled dentists with ongoing support to ensure lasting success and growth. 
After all, this is about mastering a skill that can transform your career just like it did for me. So are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Visit www.3d-dentist.com, check out our upcoming sessions, and join us to revolutionize your practice. 3D Dentist is truly committed to helping dentists take control of their practice, finances, and future. Now let's get back to this week's episode. It, it is, yes, it's pre-tax uh, operational cash flow. So right. it's pre-tax and pre-debt service when right. you calculate EBITDA. And what's a typical multiple that we're seeing in today's world uh, on these doctor to group DSO uh, situations? So, so the rule of thumb, just like I said, it, it fell in the typically 60 to 80% of collections mm -hmm. range for the bank funded piece of it. In a, a multiple of EBITDA context, solo practices typically sell for somewhere between three to five times EBITDA. Now, okay. I, I, for the sake of your audience, I do not want anybody out there to say, okay, 60 to 80% of collections equals three to five times EBITDA. They do not. All right. Those are two separate calculations. And I'm just giving you some some parameters in mm -hmm. which they fall. Um, you will almost always see practices, solo practices um, uh, uh, listed or, or the sale value listed as as a percentage of collections, um, because that's what the market understands. That's kind of what the market standards are on a doctor to doctor transaction. But a group is going to value that practice as a multiple of EBITDA before they pull the trigger on it. All right. So even though you just said that, what does three to five X typically equal to in terms of a percentage of revenue? It, it is probably somewhere in the 70 to 100 percent of collections um, uh, window. Okay. Um, it, it really does matter what um, the the EBITDA, the um, uh, operating cash flows of the business are. So I'll give you a quick example on a, a, a solo practice that we represented um, that was about two and a half million in revenue. It was a single doctor five op uh, practice, did a lot of expanded function dentistry, um, sedation dentistry and some things like that, CIRAC and everything. Um, very profitable business. Um, you know, two and a half million in revenue for one person out of five ops is is strong yeah. by yeah. any any stretch of the imagination. That's a business that a, a group buyer uh, ended up buying for close to 180% of revenue. Okay. So that was probably a multiple of six, seven X, I would imagine. Uh, it was, uh, it was, a, it was like a little bit over five actually. It? So it okay. wasn't, it wasn't too far out of the window that I mentioned the three to five X. So when, okay. So along these lines, and I'm asking these from personal, <laughs> the free advice. Here. I know where you're, I know where you're coming from. Okay. You, you, no disclaimer necessary. Yeah. Well, I want my audience to know. Yeah, um, of course. So if somebody's giving you, and is it possible and realistic in certain markets, such as the Raleigh market, to start seeing multiples not uh, to reach five to seven, eight X for solo practice for uh, sorry for individual locations, or should that be a red flag? Um, I is is it possible? I'm not going to say it's impossible. I think it would be. Um, there'd have to be a lot of compelling reasons for somebody to, to pay that type of a multiple for a traditional type of a solo practice. When I say traditional, okay. you know, if ADA average is somewhere around 700 to 750,000 in revenue, maybe 
you know, up to, let's say, a million in revenue, uh, a multiple such as that, um, we would probably want to talk a little bit more um, uh, deal structure because mm -hmm. I think the structure of the deal influences the EBITDA sure. multiple. So it's sort of a downstream argument. But I think that would be um, an anomaly, maybe. But if it were a practice that were technically a solo practice, but it was a, a larger solo practice, something that might be 10 to 12 ops, it could have mm -hmm. three um, associates in it. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and this is a business that in and of itself might generate a million dollars in EBITDA. Well, that's now that's a different kettle of fish. Okay. You know, All that's right. not a traditional. So, right. so let's let's pause on that. Let's talk about that for a second. OK, so yeah. what I just heard was I keep I personally keep stop saying solo practitioner and keep saying single location, because yeah. what we preach, I don't use the word preach. What we focus on at 3D dentists is moving to a model of single location, multiple dentists. So another advantage of moving to a single location, multiple dentists is suddenly your revenue goes up, your EBITDA, your profit margin or your cash flow goes up, and therefore the valuation of your practice goes up. And, and to kind of help uh, listeners understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is, is it's really less risk because it's not dependent on a single like if if it's if it's me and just me in my practice and i break my arm that's that's a problem for the buyer of my practice correct especially 100%. if it's structured for me to stay on whereas right now if i break my arm and i got two other dentists that can poke the load for 80 90 100% of it uh that's a less risk uh for the potential buyer correct that that's that's completely correct and and let me just build on your point for a second here we are huge fan. We at Polaris are huge fans of what I call the the large footprint single mm -hmm. location. Exactly what you're talking about. It's arguably 12 to 20 ops. It's multiple mm -hmm. providers. You're able to take complete advantage of your fixed cost structure. There's probably more opportunity to stay open extended hours and even extended days, Saturdays and otherwise. Um, so it's a it's typically a business that is not provider dependent. They do cash flow wonderfully. The volume out of it gives you some negotiating capability with either suppliers, labs, insurance companies, et cetera. Um, and these are businesses that, you know, when you start getting close to or ticking over a million dollars in EBITDA, you do get increases in the turns on the multiple. And this kind of goes back to your other uh, question about would you ever see a, so a single location go five to seven times EBITDA? when we start talking about a, a single location that's generating around a million dollars in EBITDA, then yes, you have the addition, you have the uh, opportunity to push the multiple a turn or two higher. Okay. So more advantages of get, getting the associate other than just being able to take more time off and focus on the procedures you want to focus on and all of those things. Yeah. Well, there's that too. And, but I mean, that's, that's part of being a business owner. You know, yeah. you built the business and they're the beneficiary of the risk that you took. So it's okay for, in my book, to, to take some time and do the procedures you want. All right. So here's something I ran into. So about two and a half years ago, um, I started look, looking in, not because I want to sell or I want to transition, but I'm a big believer in what I call going through the exercise. You can't make a decision if you never explore <laughs> what the possibilities are, right? And so the the first time I, I entertained having my practice evaluated, um, the group and or the accountants I, I, I had valued, they laughed at my P&L statement because it was an absolute mess. 
Okay. So if somebody's considering um, going through the exercise or going down this road, what can they do? What can the single location practitioner do to get best to get best prepared to present yourself for the best offer and valuation? It's kind of like when you go to sell a car, they always say get it cleaned and detailed and do all of those things because you want to present a shining, shining object. Sure, sure. Um, so this is a, another really good question. And thanks for asking this one, because it is um, we try to, to impress upon prospective clients that selling the business uh, should be a process and not an event. So let me kind of unpack the process for you a little bit. Uh, you know, first question, when, when people like they have their last bad day and they're just done, done and they want out. And and the question is, well, how long do you think it'll take? How quickly can you sell my business? Because I'm, I want to shoot my assistant, my hygienist. I'm done with it. We're just, I had a bad patient. So they're at the end of their rope. Bad time to sell a business. So the process of going to market and, and closing on the transaction is probably between about four and nine months on average, depending on who the buyers are, the complexity, all that kind of jazz, right? So you should probably rely on four to nine months of a window of actually committing to go to market and closing the transaction. That being said, I would tell you that two years before you're really ready to have a transaction, you ought to have somebody audit your books, take a look at the business, assess where the risks reside and where the cash flows are, um, try to understand the complexity of the business because businesses are dynamic animals. And whether it's a bank funded solo buyer or a, 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 a private equity backed group type of a buyer, um, it's gonna be a, um, a, a lengthier process to get maximum value out of it. And, and maximum value also really is dependent upon the seller. So what's what you consider to be maximum value might be different than the way I look at it. If you were looking to sell your business, you know, um, uh, wash your hands of it, go oh, buy an island. They're going to pay you less. Exactly. Because now they're taking on all, now the buyer is taking on all the risk. Whereas, so maximum value to you is maybe quality of life and being done with all the headaches. Whereas maximum value to me might be, hey, I've taken this thing as far as I can go and and I'd love to hand off some of the headaches about it, but I don't know that I'm really ready to retire. I like doing the clinical work that I do. I wouldn't mind being paid for that, maybe go from four days a week to two days a week, but I'd like to get some cash right now and I'd like to maintain an equity position that I could have a second bite of the apple three to five years down the road. So those, those types of uh, uh, mentality or, or you know how you define maximum value can be different seller to seller. And if you think about this two years leading up, you're not under any pressure at that point, kind of like you weren't when you went through the exploratory right. process. That and made now, it great for me, by the way, because I felt I felt like no problem. It would take take yeah. a year to do get this stuff cleaned up. Exactly, and it, it, one of the beauties of our business, not just to openly plug about it, but we we have a consulting side of our business, and we have a sell side advisory mm -hmm. side of our business. So if there's uh, low-hanging fruit, expense management, things to shore up, whatever it may be, you know, we kind of look at it through the lens of a consultant, not a sell-side advisor. And then we say, look, you know, these are some of the areas that you probably want to shore up and and really fix and, and tidy up, wash the car before you take it to market. And then you're probably going to show better in the marketplace mm -hmm. and hopefully command a higher value. And then we can also educate people that, you know, okay, we're, 
when we, when we close the transaction, what do you want life after that liquidity event to look like? Do you want to be the director of business development for Central North Carolina for XYZ group practice or DSO? Or do you want to be playing golf six days a week? You know, that's that <laughs> that that differentiates the risk on the on behalf of the buyer. Less risk on behalf of the buyer usually means a higher premium. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, podcast family. T-Bone here, bringing you our newest live patient implant training, Full Arch Express. For dentists already placing implants and ready to level up and continue building their implant practice, this is the golden ticket. We're diving deep into Full Arch Implants, the hottest game changer in implant dentistry. In this program, we tackle both overdentures and all next fixed hybrids, mastering techniques that are essential for modern, comprehensive dental care. It's about getting your hands on the tools and techniques that will replace the doubt and fear with confidence and predictability. Here's the kicker. There's live patient training right here in North Carolina. You're not just learning theories. You're in the operatory doing real work on real patient from start to finish, guided one-on-one by our expert 3D mentors. You'll learn the nuances of each approach, ensuring you can cater to a wide range of patients to maximize revenue. Speaking of revenue, with me, you know it's not just about the clinical skills. We're bringing business into this aspect too, teaching you how to integrate these advanced services profitably into your practice. So are you ready to rise up to the top in implant dentistry? Join us at the Full Arch Express. This isn't just another course, it's a career-defining leap. Head to www.3d-dentist.com to enroll in our next session. 3D Dentist is truly committed to helping dentists take control of their practice, finances, and future. Now, back to this week's episode. All right, so just uh, so I'm going to go through the things that we had to clean up and, and <laughs> just laugh at me. Uh, one is uh, about three years ago, I was running my speaking business through uh, my practice as uh, through that tax ID number. That became a problem. Uh, especially as the speaking and education business became significant. Sure. Uh, so we needed to clean that out because the the people had lots of questions. The group I was looking at and the buyers I was looking at then had lots of questions about the veracity of that information. Was I hiding stuff, not hiding stuff? Uh, then I had to work on cleaning out or pre-categorizing my, uh, my potential uh, taxable <laughs> personal events through the business. And we all know that one of the benefits of a small business owner is that you can questionably or rightfully run certain things through your business, things like cars, phones. Yeah. I've heard that before. Yeah. Mattresses, you know, furniture, (laughs) clothing, you know, (laughs) sports team. Yeah. Kids, all all that stuff. And I needed to get that cleaned out because that was, uh, that was dirty. I mean, when I say dirty, not illegal, but it was just, it was things that kept muddying the water. The other thing I learned through the first phase of going through this was I was keeping too much inventory of certain things that was affecting my EBITDA. So for example, um, you know, when, when you're the only owner, sorry, when you're a solo location, I like to keep, and we do a couple of hundred, 300 implants a year. I like to keep a hundred implants in stock. And what I realized through my first, uh, first go around with this, that hundred implants or 30, $40,000, uh, was 
uh, times 5x is uh, cost me $150,000 in potential valuation. And that either becomes a negotiating point uh, with the potential buyer, or you just got to clean it up uh, to get there. Uh, the other thing I noticed uh, for me was I prepaid for a lot of my long-term marketing. Uh, so I would have a one-time expense. Uh, you know, maybe I did that at the end of the year uh, for 2022. I paid in 2021 to decrease my taxable income. But then if I was selling based on a rolling average, uh, then again, that affected my EBITDA. And it'd be one more thing that you'd have to talk to somebody about, have a negotiation about. So those were the things that I learned in this process was in helping me keep my books uh, very clean. Yeah, uh, all points well taken. And look, I, I mean, if you're if you're working with a uh, a sharp sell side representative, mm -hmm. they're going to try to tease out all of that, mm -hmm. um, you know, and normalize things to the best of their ability because their job is to present the business in the best light, and also, frankly, to make it easy yeah. on the buy side to come to the same conclusion around valuation that you're representing the business at. Now, when you start getting into, you know. Uh, maybe less adept sell side representation and they just present the business the way it is and, and it's up for the buy side to figure it out, then, you know, that becomes a problem. And, and you, you mentioned one thing kind of in passing that I, I really want the audience to, to latch on to, which is, you know, times five, you, you said times five on the EBITDA multiple. What you meant there is that every dollar of savings or every dollar of profitability that you can show is worth five, six, seven times at the deal table. All right. So, so all of a sudden these little rounding errors of, you know, a couple of grand here, a couple of grand there, they add up to six figures in a hurry. Yep. And, you know, if you, if you have, personal expenses run through the business and most people do yeah um let's, <laughs> yeah, let, yeah well, if, if, as long as your accountant's okay yeah. with it right and can justify it um then then you have the liberty to do that the owner benefit piece and i, I think it's just important to be able to have them categorized to make it easy mm -hmm. to represent them for what they are and what they aren't and that's not to say that if you have a spouse or a, 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 a child or or um you know an extended family member or something on the payroll, are are they really mission critical to the business? Right. And if they're not, then categorize them one way. But if you lost them, you would have to replace them. Yep. You know, so that's somebody that is a legitimate part of the pay structure of the business. One of the other things I found interesting as well, and I'm trying to give people pointers because I've, I'm I'm three. I mean, I'm still in the process. I'm still evaluating if and what my options are was they wanted to normalize rent because I own my building and I was paying, uh, well, I was purposely paying below market rent for any number of reasons. And so that that wouldn't be the rent that I would charge uh, in the event that somebody else purchased it. So they did an add back or add away, whatever the, whatever the technical term yeah. is for it, to normalize rent. Negative adjustment. Yeah, yeah negative adjustment. Uh, so these these are all the things that I think if you're serious about looking at any type of sale, whether it's, you know, 
private to private or private to group, uh, I think you got to clean your business up because, man, it, it, it's worse than getting a loan because they ask for all kinds of documentation through the due diligence. Uh, and, and, and rightfully, they should because they're giving you a lot of money. And at the end of the day, the, most of the you know, the valuation, the value of business isn't in assets. It's in goodwill and all of that. And so sure. they don't need to buy an office with equipment that they can barely sell. Uh, so along this line, Perrin, the last question here is, OK, hey, listen, uh, two two parts to this one. Why would anybody, if the valuations are what I'm seeing in our market here in Raleigh, the valuation of private to private sale versus private to group sale is about a 50%, 40 to 50% difference in valuation. Why would somebody sell to, why would somebody not sell to a group? And then what are the pitfalls and uh, strings attached to selling to a group? Because there's got to be some strings attached to it. Yeah, um, so this is a this is a good question, and and a lot of it does come back to uh, transaction structure. So let me see if I can rattle through this in some logical sequence. There's an old adage in the world of of M and A um, that says something to the effect of, "I'll let you set the price if I get to set the structure." Right. All right. So the, I'll give you ten million for this if I only got to give you ten percent down, and I'll give you the other ten percent over fifty yeah, years while you're yeah, dead. <laughs> yeah. So so anytime people come to me and they say, you know, well, I want ten x for my business, it tells me a couple of things. One, you, you really are focused on the wrong thing because if you want ten x for your business, I'll gladly give you that every day. You may not like the structure that I put forward in terms of a twenty year earnout or something like that, but I'll give you ten x for it. You know. So what? What are we really after here? And if you, this is again, you're, you want your advisor to be able to be um, uh, educational and credible about the way transactions are structured if it's not a traditional cash-based doctor-to-doctor uh, -doctor transaction, okay? So the, the, um, the devil's in the details, as, as they say. So let's go back to, um, you know, your question about uh, if, if group, Based transactions are 140 to 150% of doctor to doctor trades in the Raleigh mm -hmm. market. Why would you, you'd be crazy not to sell to a group? In well, theory. Yeah. yeah, in theory, may, maybe, maybe not. So, so the first thing is not all groups are alike. I know they get painted with the same mm -hmm. brush, but they're truly not alike. Typically and I'm talking a negative about, brush, not always a negative brush, by the way. Right. I mean, there some. Some have hard-earned reputations. Yeah, <laughs> let's put it that way. Okay, um, but but you know we know a lot of them, and we used to say, look, you, you know, you've seen one DSO, you've seen one DSO. That's all right. They they really are different, um, and you owe it to yourself not to paint them with a broad brush because some some can create highly advantageous outcomes for people. So the next thing would be. You know, I go back to this thing about selling the business and what's your time frame after the liquidity event. Well, if somebody is really uh, late stage of their career and they just want to be done, any group buyer is going to ask the seller to stay on for some period of time. What's it's typical usually, in that situation? It's I, I tell people to bank on two years. Okay, it could be less. It could be more, depending upon the buyer. What and number? It, be, what number becomes? Uh, concerning to you as when you're on a sell side advisor? So, I mean, we don't see too many of them that would be beyond about three years. Okay. And, and I think the reason for that, here's another kind of, this is a broad generalization on, on transaction structure, but what you find is that um, an accountant would typically say, 
you're you're crazy to sell the business in mid career. Look at the cash flows in perpetuity and how much you're going to give up to sell the business now. And and I get it, but you and I both know that no business stays the same one well, year to the next. There's also a value of getting a, a million dollars in cash today and every seven every every eight years, nine years, letting it double. It, and then so yeah. my question is if you have 25, 20 years left in your career, that in theory is two doubling cycles. So if your business isn't worth three million 20 years from now, you've screwed yourself. Yeah. So, so ex exactly. So it's the alternative investment thesis right. there. And when we run, you know, transaction structures for somebody that not only is evaluating different buyers in the structures, um, but also should I, or should I not sell now? Um, you know, we, we kind of benchmark some with some degree of, of conservative cash flow projection over about five years versus the, the sale reinvestment and equity role. And, and I think that, you know, those those curves kind of cross around five years down the road. Yeah. So, you know, again, if somebody says, look, I, I, I want to be out, I want to be done. I, I only want to stay on for 90 days to help transition. Then you're going to do doctor good to doctor pretty exactly, much. Exactly, exactly. But if they say, look, you know, I'd like to stay on in a uh, in a limited, you know, cl clinical capacity. I'd like to take some chips off the table. I'd like to reap what would be arguably maximum value for the business today. Um, and I'm probably going to be done and gone in, in three to five years. Then then that sets up wonderfully well for a, a group type of a buyer. And then you're evaluating different groups. Aaron, if I told you I wanted to stick around for 10 to 12 years, what would you would you suggest selling to a group? Um. It, I could answer every question with it depends. So I here's the way I, here's the way I would answer that knowing you and knowing the market that you're in. And I think that both of those have a huge degree of influence in what I would tell you. And, and that is as follows. Um, if you're going to stay on for, for 10 years um, in a limited clinical capacity, it, it, or 10 or more years in a limited clinical capacity, um, we'd want to get really, really hard and fast numbers on the equity buyout piece up front because that in that alternative investment piece and the doubling, you know, rule of 72 every, you know, eight to nine years on reasonable returns really does matter a lot at that point. However, knowing you the way I do and knowing the North Carolina market the way I do, North Carolina is um, one of the last frontiers mm -hmm. as it relates to consolidation. And there are a lot of um, high value businesses in our world. And you and I know most of them from yeah. having lived in these markets forever. And, you know, there, there are a lot of bell cow practices commanding high value from DSOs that are looking to enter marketplaces and are willing to pay a premium for it. So a, a business like yours, I have to believe would value extremely highly in that context. The second piece that's arguably harder to put a finger on, but could make you even more, um, valuable and credible is the name brand you've created and the following you've created for yourself. And that's part of that speaking business that you had to un unentangle from right. before. So if, if somebody's looking at uh, saying, look, I'm, I'd like to enter the North Carolina market and I got to find three cornerstone clinicians or businesses to buy over the entire state of North Carolina. And I need a couple of Pied Pipers to help right. me, you know, draw followers. You would, sure. uh, you know, you'd be clinician and director of business development in, in the RTP market probably. Okay. And that would command a premium, I would think. All right. So along those same lines, I know we wouldn't keep this short. Now I have lots of questions. 
<laughs> um, along those same lines, I've had friends tell me, sell now because the valuations are going to go down when the competition goes down or the, the friend, quote unquote, frenzy or the market, you know, going down and things like the stock market going down. What's, what's your take on some of that? You know, I can argue both sides of it. I mean, here, here are a couple of things to keep in mind. Um, all, all private equity backed enterprise level DSOs use debt leverage to mm -hmm. grow. So they start with some amount of equity capital and they go to a bank and they borrow a ton of mm -hmm. money to do that. It's usually in an interest only loan structure. At a uh, pretty high interest rate a lot of times. At a variable rate, yeah. So when, when their cost of capital goes up, it's reasonable to conclude that the valuation they're able to pay goes slightly down mm -hmm. because their costs are going up, all right? I mean, so that's that's rational, that's reasonable. That being said, there's how many trillions of dollars of dry powder sitting un, uncommitted in a lot of these funds? And some will argue that there's more money available because the stock market is not a safe bet right now. And dentistry is a safe, relatively safe bet. So exactly. So you go back multiple decades and you look at private equity in terms of investment thesis for, for multiple decades. And we've taken a look at a lot of this and Deloitte and some of them at a high level do studies on this. Healthcare services are always in the top three investment criteria of all private equity groups. And if you look at healthcare services in their entirety, arguably, which is the, which is the most highly advantageous sector of healthcare services right now? It's the one that you and I are sitting in. Yeah, it's dentistry. Right? So, Mental yeah, health it, being very close behind. Yeah, I mean, and right my ahead. wife's an ophthalmologist, yeah. so ophthalmology optometry doesn't lag too far behind that. But so, and you think about, you know, the bulk of the profession of dentistry is is general dentist, and and a hygiene component plays a large uh, catalyst to that, and it makes general dentistry practices, as long as they're fairly well run, very sticky. And I'm, yeah. I mean, customer retention, patient yeah. retention, you know, so it limits the downside risk for investors. And, and I think that, you know, even though we're at arguably like 50% market consolidation or, or less than 50% is traditional solo dentist, solo, uh, location, the ADA has done some studies on this. Um, it's still a highly advantageous market to be in. And I think there's still ample runway ahead of us in terms of valuation, as long as the, uh, you know, U.S. economy and the global yeah, As long economy, as the world doesn't like, go, hit the bed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, short of a global pandemic and, you know. And even that turned out to be great for us. Yeah, for, for a little while it did, right? And and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for Jimmy Carter in the next uh, uh, presidential election just to bring back 18% inflation cycles again. So, you know, there, if you take all that out of it, I mean, I think you just look at the business of dentistry and, and the way the industry's uh, situated right now. Um, I think it's a great time to to potentially be in, in a sell side window. Mm -hmm. But I think to take maximum advantage of it, you can't look at it like an event. You really need to think about it in a in a probably three to eight year continuum, you know, to, to reap what would arguably be maximum value for it. All right, Perrin, I got one more question for you. Uh, but before we do that question, uh, tell us a little bit about about how people can get in touch with you, what Polaris does and uh, you know kind of give it give us your little pitch on that if you don't mind yeah yeah sure um uh, so I'll, I'll i'll burn up the lion's share of our time with uh <laughs> telling the company story right so 
First and foremost, our, our business is called Polaris Healthcare Partners, and our URL is polarishealthcarepartners.com. And I like to say that we search for the longest unclaimed URL, and I think we found it. So if you if you type in polarishealthcarepartners.com, you'll find us. Um, we are a strategic consulting and sell-side advisory firm that focuses exclusively with group dental practices. So a lot of these um, uh, solo doctor-to-doctor type transactions we're talking about, we understand them really well. We don't represent a lot of solo dentists in the sell side market mm-hmm. unless they have arguably a higher value practice and they're willing to sell to a group buyer. Yeah. So if, you're, if your audience is open to, you know, if their business is, is higher value and they're open to a group buyer, we probably would, would be a pretty good tool in the toolbox for them, I'd like to say. For those that are looking to build group practices, entrepreneurs such as yourself, if you wanted to add a second, third, fifth location, um, we are, are consultants that work on growth strategy with entrepreneurs. So a lot of the dental practice management consultants that you and I know really well mm-hmm. that focus on, I don't know, case acceptance and hygiene sure. retention and scheduling efficiency and all that kind of good stuff, we don't do any of that. We work with entrepreneurs who are looking to buy or build additional locations. We help them, um, uh, you know, galvanize their leadership team. We teach them how to grow businesses. We teach them how to maximize EBITDA for both valuation purposes and to borrow, to be able to borrow more money from banks to grow. Uh, we help them with associate equity models. So how do you bring an associate into the business and allow him or her to become an owner in the business? Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately, at some point, we work ourselves out of a job. You know, our, mm-hmm. our goal is not to be with them as a consultant for 10 years. You know, what did you learn? Um, but, you know, to really teach them how to run a better business and to have more confidence doing it. And hopefully once they reach some level of success and they want to take some chips off the table, they'll come back to us to represent them in the sell side market too. Perfect. Thank you, Perrin. Uh, and and for the listeners, I've known Perrin a long time, super smart. If you can't figure out he's super smart in this stuff, uh, you, you have, you don't, you're not ready to sell your practice or optimize your practice uh, for this stuff. All right. So my last, and, and honestly, uh, in my opinion, for me personally, uh, most important question is, what does an ideal deal structure look like for somebody that says, you know what, I want to get the most value. I want to go to a group. I want to stick around three, four, five years. I want to, I'm entrepreneurial in a sense that I want to have a second bite or even a third bite, but let's focus on the second bite. What are the red flags and what does a good deal structure look like there? Okay, an advantageous so- deal structure. So a lot of questions in that. And and let me let me sort of take it from the top and maybe work my way backwards sure. on this one. So um, think about uh, for your audience, think about selling your business twice. Okay. The first sale of the business, you get a, a, a some amount in cash mm-hmm. and whatever is left over is rolled into an ownership structure. Like a in, stock purchase. In, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so you go from being 100% owner of Raleigh Dental Arts, I give you 60% of the value of that mm-hmm. in cash. You can do with it whatever you want. And the remaining 40% is in the, the Perrin Desports Enterprise DSO mm-hmm. um, that's all over the Southeast. So you are you are rolling mm-hmm. some of the proceeds to the sale into ownership in the parent company. But let me be uh, one quick. You're not an equity owner of your practice anymore. You are a stockholder, correct? So you're not entitled to dividends typically of the operations of your practice. 
Well, again, it depends on yeah. the buyer. Now, here's since you mentioned dividends, here's a rule of thumb. Let me just tie that off mm -hmm. real quick. Um, typically, group buyers do not declare dividends because they are reinvesting the that's cash correct. that's available from a dividend into a growth mechanism for the that's business, correct. usually to buy more practices. Yeah, okay. So, so do not rely on cashing out dividends from a practice level or a sub DSO level right. or something like that. Some do, but most do not. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the, the thing here on the equity role piece being a stockholder of ABC DSO is that you want the value of the shares you hold to grow every bit as much as if you owned Apple or Google mm -hmm. or any other stock, right? The reason we buy them is because we think the best days of the company are ahead of it. This is the same thing, but it's ownership in a privately held company, not a public tra publicly traded company. So the, the second piece to keep in mind beyond ownership in, a, in, in the parent company is that all of these enterprise, almost all of these enterprise level DSOs are private equity backed. Mm -hmm. And a private equity group is an investment vehicle. And they may own a group dental practice and they may own a, a hotel chain and they may own a sports equipment manufacturing company or whatever else, right? They're just looking for their best available return on their investment. We like to say private equity groups rent businesses. They mm -hmm. don't own businesses. Three to five years. Okay. So what that means is a private equity backer of an enterprise level group is going to invest in that group. They're going to hopefully improve that group. When I say improve, I mean improve profitability. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to exit their position with probably another private equity type buyer to buy them out at some point in time. And that's called a recap. Mm-hmm. When the business recaps, meaning private equity group A sells the enterprise level DSO to private equity back group or to private equity buyer B, then those of you like Tarun Agarwal that rolled your 40% are able to pull the proceeds out. Or a portion of your proceeds out. A portion of it. If you want to leave some in, some are obligated to leave in. Mm -hmm. Others can cash out completely. Again, it kind of depends on the buyer. The key to this is, when when ABC DSO buys Raleigh Dental Arts, how long has the private equity uh, group owned mm -hmm. ABC DSO? Is it early in their stage of right. investment or is it late, meaning closer to recap? If it's earlier, it's like for you getting a stock on an IPO. Right. Three to five it's, years. Exactly. Three to, yeah, it, it, that's the rule of thumb. Three to five years. And pre-pandemic, it was arguably two to three years because yeah. the, the returns were so good. So when when you're able to cash out uh, on, upon a recap, that's really the the you know doubling or tripling potentially the value of your equity that you rolled in. And sometimes that second bite of the apple can be worth far more than the first bite. So it comes back to risk tolerance for you. How much cash do you need when you sell your business the first time? Do you need, you know, 80% of it in cash? Do you need 60%? How much do you believe in the buyer? Mm -hmm. Meaning how much do you want to roll in terms of percentage? And where is the buyer in terms of the, the investment hold cycle along the way?
I want to I want to clarify one thing for the listeners. Uh, so some people say, how does a second bite equal more money? And and here's the basics of that is if 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 parent parents a DSO, let's pretend, okay, you buy my business for five X, let's call it, okay. And then when you group and package and consolidate 20, 30, 40, 50 offices together, you're going to sell at a multiple of 10, 12, maybe even 15 X. So now your 40%, 20%, 30% stock gets valued at what bought in at five X now gets valued at 10x, 12x, 15x. So sometimes the second bite of the apple can be equivalent to the initial sale or even more than the initial sale. And that's that's the that's the or that's the allure to group practices. Uh and uh, and especially if it's a well-run group and and they're got that two to three win year window and they're willing to invest and in, and in ingest inject money into your business and operationalize it. Uh, then they're going to increase your EBITDA and they're going to increase your multiple. And I'm not trying to be a sales pitch for DSOs. I'm just trying to be a sales pitch of knowing your options so you can make the best decision that works best in your career. And and what I'm seeing is too many people wait till they're 60 and the only option available to them is to exit and walk away. Whereas if they sold it when they were 50, they could have they could have yielded two, three hundred percent of their practice valuation. That's exactly is that, right. Is that pretty much in a nutshell? Yeah, and and you you got to impress upon the point that every group is different. You know, every enterprise level buyer is different based on their longevity, based on the whole cycle, uh, and some have different equity structures where your your rolled equity re would reside in their current cap table, which that's mm -hmm. a totally wonky argument sure. to go down. But it's once again, if you're going to entertain selling your business to a group to reap whatever you consider to be maximum value. You really want a sell-side advisor that, that understands how to read the tea leaves, understands what you want, understands your risk tolerance and knows the buy side market to find the best partner for you because none of this is guaranteed. So, all right. So one last thing, I keep, I keep coming up with things. I apologize, Barry. You're going to run out of one last here before. <laughs> well, I'm, longer, that's, but... that's a, uh, uh, people that have heard me speak uh, or when they run my seminars, that's and, why. And I'm, another thing, and another thing. Yeah. And another um, thing. You mentioned DSO and sub-DSO. Should you be concerned if the buyer wants to keep you your equity in the sub-DSO? Not necessarily. A lot of them have sub-DSOs for really legitimate reasons. And, and a lot of that is driven by the, the differences in um potential differences in legal structures mm -hmm. from one state to the next. So if you have a, if you're, if you sell your business to an enterprise level buyer and they're in 20 different states, they very well could have 20 different sub DSOs or even mm -hmm. sub DSOs within certain states. It, well, it doesn't make this level DSO. Yeah. I mean, it, it you could have that. It doesn't, uh, you know, each, that's why I say each buyer is slightly different in terms of their overall equity structure, how it rolls up into the cap table. The other thing is that some may limit the amount of, of upside that you have based on valuation multiple. You mentioned selling your business at five times and the, the parent company recaps at 10 times. Well, it doesn't necessarily always mean that you're the beneficiary of that five to 10 spread there. And others say, hey, look, we're we're an earlier stage uh, DSO. Um, we we only have um, 50 practices, but for that reason, since you're getting in early with us, all of the equity trades at the mm -hmm. same level uh, of the cap table, and there is no difference. And that's a benefit to you for being in early. Mm -hmm. There's okay. more risk with that, right? I mean, that's so. There's risk and reward on all this, and you know, there again, no no return is guaranteed. You may 
um, choose a, a an enterprise level buyer that's been around for you know decades. That's about as safe as bad as they come. Mm-hmm. But maybe the return on your your dollar is you know uh, 1.25 instead of the 3x that right. you could have gotten with a, a a riskier venture potentially. So would, would you encourage people? I know it's going to be depends. Would you encourage people to take as much off the table on the front end or roll more in? If if the DSO the buyer gives you the opportunity to say we can we can we can give you sixty percent sixty percent or even eighty percent up front, uh, what would your general answer to that be? Uh, my general answer would be that I've uh, I've seen far uh, better second bite outcomes for sellers than I have those that didn't materialize. So. Um, you know, it depends on kind of where you are in life and what your fixed cost structure is, honestly, you know, how much, how much can you afford to risk it? Very rarely do we ever see these businesses go to zero. Okay. All right. I mean, there's, they still cash flow wonderfully. Some may underperform relative to others. Uh, and that's why I say your, your risk tolerance, but, you know, knowing the, the buy side we do as well as we do, and, and probably, you know, what we feel like our gut level tells us over the next five to 10 years. I think dentistry is a really good bet. And I think if you um, are evaluating between several very good potential suitors, the likelihood is that you're going to get a nice return um, on on your role. Well, Perrin, thank you so much. I hope for those of you that really understood what we were talking about and it it really gets you going and it makes you think differently. And that's my hope. My hope is I want to create thought. I want I want your wheels to get spinning. Uh, give give Perrin a call, give Polaris Healthcare a call. And, you know, and, and if nothing else, pick his brain at least. And, and, you know, that's how that's how things get started. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week and we will see you guys next week. Hey, podcast family, T-Bone here. Are you a dentist looking to elevate your practice and profits? Then pay close attention. Introducing the 3D Business Mastermind, the dental business coaching program designed for dentists who want to see real results. I've walked the path of practice ownership for nearly 25 years. I know your challenges. I felt your pain. This is your opportunity to overcome the chaos, the busyness, and the financial frustrations of owning a dental practice. Imagine a dental practice where your appointment book is highly productive, doing the dentistry you enjoy, your team is self-motivated, and your profits keep climbing. That's what the 3D Business Mastermind is all about. In this exclusive mastermind, you'll join a league of ambitious dentists driven to elevate their practices. You'll gain access to proven strategies, personalized coaching, and a community that understands your journey. So if you're ready to supercharge your dental practice and enjoy the success you deserve, visit www.3d-dentists.com and take the first step towards a brighter future in dentistry by filling out the 3D Business Mastermind application. Now, let's get to this week's episode.